Good evening, Los Angeles, and welcome back to another episode of the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher, and I'm going to be with you for the next hour as we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Tonight's show is going to be talking about the problem of evil, otherwise known as theodicy. And in studio tonight to help me navigate this topic are my two good buddies, uh, Mr. Tony Yu. Hello, How's it going, Jason? Good, Tony. And Mr. Daniel Adrian. Hi. How you doing? Good, thanks. Thank you for joining us. And uh, this is a listener-supported show. We'd like to let you guys know if you wanted to get a year-end donation in, you can go to our website, apologetics.com. Click on Give. We are uh, entirely listener-supported. We do not take salaries here as, as hosts. We've been doing this for about 23 years now here on KKLA. And by God's grace, we um, are still doing it. So if you've been blessed and you have a heart to give and support this ministry, which proclaims the gospel, defends the faith here in Los Angeles in the largest you know, Christian radio station, uh, reaching you know, 20 million people plus, uh, please consider that as the year uh, comes to an end. We would love to have you partner with us and continue in this work. Um, but if, if not, you know, that's fine too. Uh, we will continue to be here and carry on this work and this labor of love. And, um, as long as God allows us to do that. So tonight's topic, um, is a big one. It's a core doctrine or topic that you will come across if you've ever spent any time defending the faith in apologetics it's probably one of the top five, you know, questions that you come across, and it's it rears its head every day, really. It rears its ugly head, and it is the problem of evil. And to state this problem, uh, logically, it's been around since, you know, the time of Epicurus, and the argument goes like this. If God is willing to prevent evil, but he's not able... Um, is he God, right? If he is all-powerful um, but not willing, is he good, right? He would be evil. He would be a bad God. If God was both able and willing, where would evil come from if he was able and willing to prevent it? If he's not able or willing, then why would we even call him God? And the idea is, it's it's a logical argument that basically states if God is all-powerful, if he's all-good and he's all-knowing, then he would prevent evil. Evil would not exist. Since there is evil in the world, it logically follows then that a good, powerful, and all-knowing God does not exist. And as you look around the world, the way this gets presented to you is not necessarily in that logical form, but people will look around and they will talk about uh, all the suffering in the world around us that appears to be completely meaningless and completely avoidable. It doesn't seem to be adding anything of value to the world around us. And so they will say, well, why would God allow something like you know, children to starve or babies to be born you know, without arms and legs or something like that? They will point to something that every person would think of as evil. And then they would say, well, why does God allow that? 
uh, be, and because that exists, God must not either be good um, or he must not be willing. And therefore, if that is the God who exists, I don't want to believe in him. Um, I don't want anything to do with him. Or it's simply the case that God does not exist. And so that's what we're going to unpack tonight. I have uh, Daniel and Tony here. And I'm just going to sit back and let them talk because, you know, I don't really need this is going to be a really relaxing evening for me um, because these two are, you know, extraordinary uh, theologians and evangelists and uh, just scholars of the scriptures. So you guys are in for a treat. Normally, I only have one of these gentlemen with me, but since it's year end, it's December, we kind of wanted to go out with a bang. And so, so they're both they're both here, and we want to talk with you guys too. So, uh, we'll throw out the number if you guys are cruising along. I don't know what you're up to tonight. Maybe you had a Christmas party, um, just tuning in. Maybe you're at home. We'd love to talk with you about this topic or any other topic really that's going on in the world as it relates to our faith, um, Christianity. So, give us a call. It's triple eight nine nine five KKLA. That's triple eight ninety nine five. Five 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 two. So, Tony, Daniel, um, let's start with this uh, this problem of evil. You know, as you guys have come across it, you know, maybe you guys want to add some nuances to the definition. Um, you know, maybe you know where do you guys want to start with this uh, navigating and answering this this big question that comes up. Well, let's simplify the definition just a little bit. Um, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil? Right? Really simple phrase. Yeah. Because if he's all-powerful, he can do anything. If he's all-good, he would stop evil. Why right. is there evil in the world? Nobody would think that there's no evil in the world. Right? So uh, yeah. this immediately begs the question, because anybody who objects to God's existence or God's nature based on the problem of evil is already making an assumption. They're assuming that evil is real, mm -hmm. an objective reality. Otherwise, we're just talking about opinions. Like, I like chocolate and you like vanilla. Who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Evil is an object objective reality, but based on whose standard? Where does the moral standard that says this is evil and that is not evil come from? Right. Yeah, no, I think Tony does a good job of getting back behind some of the assumptions. He has a whole list of assumptions that he went over with us earlier. I don't know how many we'll get to, but you're bringing these notions to the table in order to begin to ask the question. And so what we've talked about historically and what we've been – how because this has gone <laughs> – I'm sure somebody before Epicurus or Epicurus, your, your pronunciation preferred – brought this up, brought it up in a different sense. And so I think what one good thing about how you asked us the question was, how have we experienced it out there? So in an academic setting, very much like this, just kind of rehearsing the argument. And so it's important that we step back behind it and say, well, it, first, what's your standard for the existence of evil? If it's an objective reality, how do you know that? Where does that information come from? What makes something evil or good rather than a mere opinion or a preference? These are all very good ways to attack that particular part of the argument. And then also, even if evil were to exist and you knew that, say, innately, you knew that by human nature, 
How would you hold God accountable to any standard outside of himself? Who does God get held accountable to? Ultimately, who judges the judge of all the earth? Who judges the perfect judge? So a standard of judgment above the judge would mean that God is not the judge. So when Epicurus tries to pay or Epicurus tries to pay lip service to God being God, which he talks about in the conclusion or in premise three, if I'm misremembering, um, he does not do that same thing when it comes to why his notion of evil would apply to God in the first place. And that's, again, even granting that he has some innate conception of evil. So that's two real quick on that. You look like you've got something, Tony. No, I mean, um, I ended my answer with a question, mm-hmm. but let's answer that question. Where did, wh- who has this moral standard? Yeah. The only place where a moral standard that we should be held to can come from is God. Because outside of God, everything's an opinion. What are human beings? We're just bags of chemicals with reactions going on inside of our heads. Who cares that your, your head is bubbling one way and his head's bubbling another way? These are human opinions. Outside of God, there is no such thing as objective evil. So by stating that there is a problem of evil, you're admitting God exists. So you've yeah. canceled out your argument by making your argument. Right, and a lot of people don't realize they're doing that when they bring this right. objection, right? They're not, um, you know, what some people would say is they're not epistemologically self aware or self-conscious right which means their foundation for knowledge is something that they're denying you right at the same time that they're um you know presupposing it or assuming it to be true and one thing we can do i think there's there's a few ways to answer this question i think you you can kind of navigate a philosophical kind of um you know, way of answering this with someone, you can go logical, you know, and you can go more emotional, right? And I think the scriptures really answer all of those three things. I think all of them together give us the strong, you know, answer that we have. And I think it's important to unpack each one of those. So let's unpack kind of that presuppositional one first, this, you know, smuggling in of this concept, it's it's kind of, you know, related to the the transcendental argument that, you know, in order for you to call something evil, there must be some standard um, by which you make that differentiation, right? There must be some standard of good with you know with which you have to say, okay, this is not good, this is evil. The problem is, let's just unpack that a little bit, okay? Let's just say, who can ask such a question? You know, if someone's an evolutionist, if someone's a Darwinist, a naturalist, if all there is is, you know, as you were, you know, you have that Dawkins quote, you know, you might, you could read that to people. If all there is is chemicals and all we are is dancing along to our DNA, then, you know, that is just what is, right? You can't call it good. You can't call it evil, right? Um, so if you're, if you're saying God doesn't exist, because evil exists, you're undermining, you're refuting yourself, you know, right off, right off the bat. Absolutely. Well, although, so they ultimately can't say that evil exists, which is what we're demonstrating. So they actually have no standing to tell you that evil exists in an ultimate sense. 
So their argument is a non-starter. And what then, they're saying is, I don't like this. I don't like something. Yeah. So that's really even, what their definition. Even if they were to say, you know, Krishna told me this is evil. Okay. Well, why does Krishna exist? It's a it's a version of the same. Whatever your whatever your controlling belief is, right? Whatever your starting point is, that's what we're going to be addressing with you on the evil side, but also on the God side. Who is this God that you're talking about? Because the, the, the false God that's implicit that we've talked about, but I'll just circle back around and try to emphasize one more time, is a God who's all good but can't or won't for some reason, and there's no argumentation supporting this, allow or suffer the existence of evil. Evil can't exist with this posited God, but this is not the God of any system practically. There's hardly a religion that doesn't have a God coexisting with evil in one sense or another. So you're already, you're smuggling in a whole entirely different concept of God. Not even the Aristotelian God, which is not very much of a God, by the way, uh, would would be um, agnostic or, or non-coexistent with evil. Agnostic of not ha- having no knowledge of or not being able to exist at the same time as evil. So... We can attack those two things, and then Tony said something that made me remember one of the ways I approach this with people is not only do these people have an infinite number of problems of their own with evil, they have a problem with good, right? Because you just invert what we said about the existence of evil. How can you tell me anything is good? So if you can't tell me if something is good, why would I listen to you about evil? If you can't tell me that it's good to save the lives of victims of terror— then why would I listen to you about why terrorism shouldn't be done in the first place? Mm-hmm. So it cuts in both directions like many of these do. Um, and when it's phrased in this way where they're they're trying to make it sound like, no, I'm demonstrating or I'm, sh- I'm showing and proving to you that this God of yours can't exist, then this is how we address it. Right. When people come to you with this, why would a loving God allow, then the conversation is still going to have these facts in them. It's still going to have these truths in them, but we're going to probably get to those in a different way. So I want to make the problem even worse. Okay. I want to quote Isaiah 45, seven in the King James, which, which says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord do all things. And in other translations, it says create calamity. And they're both right. fine translations. If you think about the days of Elijah, when God sent a, a drought and a famine. You can call that evil because people were starving, but God had a purpose in bringing that evil or that calamity. So I, I don't hide from the fact that God is at some level responsible for evil, but he's bringing about, bringing about good by allowing evil to happen. Yeah, so this is where, you know, you, the language, adjust the language as needed. When someone is speaking to you about um, you know, who they think God is. It's important to get them to where are they getting this information? Why do they have this confidence in who this God is, as we've talked about a little bit? But also this idea of what, you know, what is God ultimately responsible to or who, if anything? And I think the only possible answer that for that is his himself, is himself, his own nature. So if God is in his nature good, we're already done with the problem of evil as long as we fill in the blanks for people. Yeah, let me ask you. Let me ask you guys a question um, regarding God creating evil. Mm-hmm. What is so? Let's 
let's define what is evil, right? How would you guys define that? Evil is anything that is contrary to God's nature or it's a transgression of his law. Okay. Sin. So that sounds like yes. evil is sin. Right. Sin and anything that could properly be called a crime, which would also be a sin. Okay. So can God commit sin? No. 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 So can God do evil? No. Okay. But he allows evil, uses it for good purposes. Genesis fifty twenty. He allows evil. Right. Yes. That's different than creating it or being the author of it. Right. Or sinning. Right. He's well, basically just allow- like a, a nuance, an important nuance. <laughs> He's allowing us to suffer the consequences of our evil choices. Yes. And I, w- I would say he's probably actively preventing evil all the time, all over the place. And when he wants to, he could take his hand off of that and allow it to accomplish okay, so just, a certain will. Just to kind of try to play the role of devil's advocate, someone might be listening in. They might be hearing some of the things that we're saying. And, you know, we mentioned God bringing a drought, mm-hmm. God bringing a famine. Okay. Is a drought evil? That's natural evil. Is God morally obligated? God controls the weather. He controls the rain, right? Mm -hmm. Is God morally obligated to bring rain upon the earth? Does he have a moral obligation there? When we sin against God, what we're saying to God is we don't want you. We don't want your law. We don't want anything. Mm -hmm. We don't know how foolish that statement is. Yeah. Because he's the provider of all that's good. The assumption is when we say we don't want God, when we sin against him, that if God steps back, everything will still be okay. We just won't have this guy bearing over us, telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. In reality, he's the one who brings the rain, brings the food, brings all the things that are good that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. When we say no to God, we say no to all that is good. Okay. So if God brings a drought upon a land and people begin to die from lack of water or lack of the ability to grow food, whatever it might be. Um, Is that a moral sin on God's part? No. Why not? That's that's us receiving what we asked for. Okay. In fact, if you want to... So it's people in rebellion Mm -hmm. saying, I don't want God, I don't want you, I don't want your provision, I hate you. If you want to blame God for anything... You want to blame him for giving us so much good in spite of us telling him to go away. Mm-hmm. Which is a formulation Daniel. of the problem of good, right? Right? Why, why are good things in the world when we're so evil? Right? So if I, that's, yeah. what, that's what I mean by meeting someone where they're at. If they're, on, okay. if they're harping on the evil side uh, and they're really dogmatic about it, pun intended, <laughs> then I will mix my <laughs> metaphors here, harping and dogmatic. Uh then I will, I'll say, okay, well, then let's focus on evil. You seem to really be troubled by evil. Have yeah. you ever even considered why there are good things? In mm-hmm. a natural universe, why is there a natural good? Right. Why is there the proper yeah. <laughs> blessed amount of rain that falls in a given place at a given time over a given duration that brings a plentiful harvest through all the other mechanisms that God uses and superintends that he providentially governs to this good end of a plentiful harvest and a rich valley and things like this. So to add on to what Tony's saying really quickly, I think, yeah, sure. um, Every natural evil, every 
every evil that's a consequence of the fall is exactly that. That's what we're, we're kind of just def- redefining natural evil. It's a consequence of the fall. So the, sin and its consequences are what are in view for our rebellion. And this is why we don't have to be tornado prophetic tornado assigners. Right. We don't have to say that this tornado happened here because of these sins. Right. Because we can just say, no, generally, that's what we deserve. We deserve a hellish succession, pun intended, not even really pun, literally hellish succession of calamities, natural evils rained upon us. That could be God's will for a nation. Think of the nations that have suffered long under famine or pestilence, Mm -hmm. right? How many, what was the percentage? 30% or so of Europe died of the Black Death. Mm. That was God's good pleasure. That was good. Europe has been done, God has done good to Europe through that. He's brought good out of that. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Well, and when we say, so on create, right? He makes. So God, so that. The Black Death, the Black Plague, was really a result of sin. That's we're part of this fallen creation, right? When man, when Adam sinned, all creation fell. All creation began to groan. Death entered the world. Decay. All of the diseases and you know cancers and all of this stuff started to. It's now part of the reality that we live in, right? So this Black Plague is ultimately a result of sin, right? The curse coming upon the land, coming upon the earth, that killed 30% of the population of Europe. And God, in his grace, although, you know, it's perfectly just, you know, we live in that world. There's nothing, you know, God did no evil to us by allowing the plague to sweep through. That's really just being part of this cursed creation due to the fall. But God, in his mercy, in his love, in his, you know, goodness... He actually uses that to bring about good and to bring about blessing and to bring about those things. Let's look at how. As a result of it. Hosea 5.15. Is that what you're kind of saying, Daniel? Yeah. And then, can, yeah. Jump, okay. I'll jump Go back ahead. in. Hosea 5.15 at the end, it says, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So as we're suffering evil, sometimes we finally come to our senses and reach out to God. Because yeah. the ultimate good he wants for us is salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Our comfort in this world is really nothing yeah. because it's for such a short time. Yeah, He's willing to allow us to suffer immensely if necessary for us to reach out to him so he can give us the ultimate good. Yeah, And you're going to hear this language throughout the show of allowing and permission, and he's willing that. And the reason why we're doing that is to show you that God is not some equally ultimate monster in terms of how he governs all things. What do I mean by that? He does not work good in the world in an equivalent sense to the way that he superintends evil, foreordains evil for his purposes. So he's not creating evil in the world to for for uh, for a non-good and an or even a morally neutral purpose. Uh-huh. Whereas he does good to us when we deserve only evil. Right. That is out of, that's ex nihilo goodness right. poured upon us, if you'll. Right. Yes. So it's, that language has been used historically in the church to guard that distinction. God is not equally with his left hand and his right hand dispensing, because that that then is giving you this Zoroastrian 
somewhat Baha'ian or Manichaean, Manichaean view of God, this equally, this dualistic God, right? Good, half evil, half half good God, a yin and yang God of some kind, right? God is not the Tao in that sense. God is not an Eastern conceptualization of the necessity of evil existing. And that's why I said when we were undercutting the argument, the form of the argument earlier, we get rid of the existence of evil and we get rid of the existence of a God who is powerless before evil that he creates. He doesn't create something he's powerless to. But again, creation is first causality. First causality is not authorship. So remember, right. author of sin. When I sin, God doesn't come inside of me and make me sin. Mm-hmm. And what I so like the best analogy I found for this so far is, uh, I write a story full of evil things. My hand is writing the page. God is ultimately first cause of all things. He didn't make my hand. Right. Tries the. He made you. He made me. Who does that? And he yeah. made. He made me, you, and he gave you a will. And I willed to do those things according Correct. to my nature. Yes. Now, that's not just people don't like that because they think it's too mechanical or whatever, but it's that's why it's an image, a figure. It's the same thing when I'm actually doing evil actions out in the world. He's not living inside of me and moving me around to do evil. Yeah. Right? I'm not right. I'm not a puppet exactly. in that sense. Yes. So the free will thing that we'll talk about cuts in both ways in both yes. directions as well. Right? He doesn't make me free will to so, so that I can be a moral monster and he doesn't give me free will so that I can only will to do good because I'm so untouched and unaffected by my first parent's fall and my own fallen nature that I'm born with and that I actually sin out of as I live. Mm-hmm. He's not created me with a free will that goes entirely to the right hand or to the left hand in those extremes. Yes. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And it sounds like if we were to summarize what we've been saying for this first half of the show is that the existence of evil in the world does not, there is no logical problem between living in a world where evil exists and living in a world in which God is good and powerful and loving. And what we've been kind of emphasizing is the absolute goodness of God. And while what we deserve is only death and decay from the fall, God still lavishes his goodness on us. And that is a question that we can levy back onto the unbeliever or the skeptic um, when they bring up this problem of evil. So we are at the first half end of our show. Uh, We are talking about the problem of evil, and we will be right back after these important messages. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second half of the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Jason Gallagher. We are talking tonight about the problem of evil or theodicy. It's one of the biggest kind of apologetics questions that you'll get from skeptics. And it really kind of, you know, we touch it every day of our lives, um, especially when we look at the world around us, you know, especially, you know, what's been in the news a lot lately is this whole, you know, conflict with uh, Israel and Hamas. And you have basically just some horrific, horrific displays of evil, you know, through uh, the hands of men. And um, people ask the question, why people ask the question why do 
these things need to happen? Uh, why do they happen? And how do you reconcile these evil acts against women, against children, in the name of religion sometimes, um, oftentimes? And how do you reconcile that with a God who is good and loving and powerful as, you know, the God of the Bible uh, clearly uh, claims to be? And so that's kind of the, the topic that we're unpacking. We, we talked the first half of the show about this idea of evil that in order to even really discuss this concept and to have this as a concept, you must really step into the Christian worldview, right? A naturalistic worldview, an atheistic worldview really can't even account for the concept of evil. And as Daniel pointed out, you can't even account for the problem or the existence of good. You know, for an atheist, the fact that anything good happens is a huge problem, right? Why, why would that be um, in a you know, naturalistic universe. So we discussed that in the first half of the show. We want to talk a little bit about this idea of free will. That came up a little bit um, in the first half, you know, this idea that men and women have free will, they make free choices, and we want to understand how that plays into this idea of evil and the existence of evil. And before we do that, I'll throw out the number for our show again. If you'd like to call in, we'd love to chat with you. 888-995-KKLA. That's 888-995-5552. Give us a call. we got plenty of lines open. And uh, you could ask us questions about the scriptures or, um, you know, if you're a skeptic, uh, we'd love to, to hear some of your reasons why you might not believe. Or if you're a Christian, just, um, you know, if you have any um, thoughts about the conversation, we'd be happy to chat with you as well. So one thing I think is interesting about the scriptures is that it does, the scriptures themselves don't hide this this fact of uh, the problem of evil, you know, for example. And I'll just look at a couple of scriptures here briefly. You know, Ecclesiastes is one of those books, right? Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3 says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So this is the heart cry of a man who has seen evil, seen oppression, and has basically said, you're better off dead. Even more so, you're better off never even being born um, because all there is is evil. You know, David in the Psalms, you read, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, why does it seem that God is not here when things are hard? Jesus himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, but by night, but I find no rest. And so the scriptures do not hide the reality and existence of evil. And one of the ways 
we want to understand the existence of this evil and we want to answer these people because a lot of these people have genuine heartfelt questions, right? There is all this pain. There is all this suffering. Look at what's happening in Israel. Look at what, what's happening with Hamas and the conflict. I mean, just terrible, terrible atrocities. And people, they see it and they're like, man, how can I, where is God in all of this? So let's talk about free will. Let's talk about how that plays into the reality that we see around us. Well, these free choices people make. Free will is pretty evident. God says in his law, and he's written in our heart, you shall not murder. But there is murder. Mm. The fact that there is anything that goes against God's will is evidence of free will. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, you were talking about writing a letter earlier, and you said, you write the letter. And you talked about the first cause of that letter. And the first cause of that letter is not you, it's God. God is the ultimate primary first cause. The fact that you can sit down and write a letter, you know, um, God is ultimately responsible for that being able to take place, correct? Yeah, and even to the living of my own life, right? I'm I, in, in free choices and in volition. Uh, an author said well that volition has no meaning apart from freedom, right? The freedom of actually choosing something, because what, what are you willing to do? If all will right. is predetermined in this necessitarian sense, then what are we even talking about? What, it's what, not will. Yeah, yeah, it's not will. There is no will. Right. So there's on the one extreme, you have the deification of the will, and then the necessitarians or the determinists. Uh, the other extreme, there's no willing whatsoever. Right. Basically, only God wills. Well, it's true that God's will is above all and is ultimate and is the first cause of any other willing that gets done, but God was pleased to get give the capacity, the ability for creatures to will, two, cre right. two types of creatures in particular. Yeah. Angels and men. Yeah. Uh, even even animals seem to have some brute, brutish, very old word there, some animalian, <laughs> mm -hmm. some creature-like capacity for choice. You see them, they seem to will to do something after the fashion of an animal. That's not image-bearing. That's not likeness-bearing. But with us, this is, this is what it means for us to be a rational soul. That's why we use that language historically what does it mean for man to be a rational animal is what aristotle says mm -hmm. the church takes that and says what it, a rational living human soul well it means that we have this power of choice but i can't choose can i choose you know can a fish choose to become a tree or can i choose to will as my mom wills when i'm not my mom can my mom choose to will my will for me i can't violate my nature who i am my identity in making my choices and there's no contradiction here. That's it's it's equivocation. It's it's semantic drift. It's losing the thread of what we mean when we're saying will in these different senses. Yeah, that we make free choices according to our natures, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, maybe an analogy here would help. And I don't know if this is a is a helpful analogy, but something that doesn't have free will. You know, I'm thinking of like an iPhone, right? This i our iPhones don't have their own real. They don't have a will of their own. They don't make their own choices. They basically do whatever we tell them, right? Um, whether it's send a text message or, you know, open up the your email or open up your 
text app or open up Facebook, all they do, all they have is programs that respond to what we desire them to do. And we are not like that. We are not computers. We are not robots in that sense. God is not just pushing a button and Daniel's going and writing, you know, this letter. Pushing a button and Tony's going to go to work today because he feels like, you know, being productive and, you know, being a good employee. You know, those are things that you are doing, those free choices that you are making. And God has created you in his image with the ability to do that. You know, you're a rational being and you have a will, the desire to, the ability to make choices of your own according to your nature. Now, you're not going to go fly, you know. Tony says, I I feel like flying today, you know, on my own. Tony's not going to be able to fly (laughs) because your nature just prevents you from doing that sort of thing. Um, And so now let's kind of take that to, you know, the Hamas and Israel and free will. So because someone, I think, presented that question to Tony, you know, that this this is a this is a question that's been coming up recently in evangelistic conversations. You know, people ask these questions and it's a real thing. You see it on the TV or Internet or wherever. And they're asking the Christian, what what is up here? Like, where is God in all of this? Yeah, let's try to tie that that. into free will and everything that. So. The will can be molded or bent or directed by one thing, belief. If you believe this is true, you'll do this. If you believe that is true, you do that, right? If you believe your house is on fire, you'd run out. Mm -hmm. So let's step it one step back for a second. When we see Hamas attacking Israel, we see other things similar to that in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7, 17 says, The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. So why did Assyria attack the northern ten tribes and disperse it and utterly destroy, murder, kill, rape, burn, pillage? Because God willed it to happen because the northern ten tribes were so sinful. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that I know why exactly Hamas is attacking Israel today. But we could surmise that God is doing something in that, right? So getting back to the belief system thing, what is motivating Hamas? It's the Quran. It's Islam. That's the reason why they're doing what they're doing. In the, op- in the charter of Hamas, they quote Quran 3, 110, chapter 3, verse 110 you that as Muslims are the best nation ever to be brought forth for people. Okay. And then it says of the uh, unbelievers, most of them are evildoers. Quran 98, six says this, the unbelievers among the people of the book and the idolaters shall be forever in the fire of Gehenna. They are the worst of creatures. So this book, the, the Quran this religion, Islam, teaches Muslims that they are the best human beings on earth and everybody else who doesn't believe like them are the worst of creatures, lower than animals, lower than pigs. Right. That is why they're doing what they're doing. So their beliefs drive them to do these things. And God has given them that freedom to make evil choices. Right. To sin. That's why even salvation is predicated on belief 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because what you believe, you will do. Right. What you believe will determine who you are. Mm-hmm. So God allows this, and he allows it for a ultimate good purpose. Right. Yeah, so technically... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, technically, we might call it morally sufficient reason. Everything that God does has a morally sufficient reason, but I like just rooting it in his essential, natural, is funny to say, of God, right? But in his nature and in his essence, uh, essentially, he is good. And so, therefore, he has a good reason for whatever's going on in the Middle East and whatever's been going on there for what feels like a very, very long time and actually has been a long time. <laughs> uh, it feels like yeah. it and it has been. Uh, he has too a good long. reason. Yeah, for, for too long. And and we were talking about this a little bit in between time. This is what I mean by the, the discourse has shifted a little bit in the even the framing of this question. It's an implicit appeal to justice. Where's the justice? Right, it is, yeah. Right? So it's not this kind of... Uh, ivory tower speculative realm it's this is something unjust or evil in that sense is happening and they're right but are they but do they know do they have a foundation for why they're right why does it matter again two uh fizzing bags of stuff of goo fighting nonsensical okay or if 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 the telos or telos or telos however you want to say that of your system is survival then May the best people group win. May the more fit survive right. and the other be consigned to the dustbin of history, which is where that notion of survival of the fittest belongs. But that's literally a direct inversion of what we were talking about earlier, which is that God has designed a good world to a, a good order, created order, whole creation, cosmos, to a good end, to a good telos, however many pronunciations right. you want of that. Right? That is what he's done. And that is where you solve this uh, is-ought thing that materialists have nothing to do with. Is and ought become one when it's God's purpose for something. There is no is-ought gap in God's purpose for what he's made. Yeah, It's only always ever good, and it's only always ever morally good, perfectly morally good, because God, of course, is the perfect source and standard of morality. I want to share the good news and the bad news of this whole situation in Israel. Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 are very famous for why good things and bad things happen to the nation of Israel. Okay? So let's hear, let's hear the, the bad news. Deuteronomy 28:15. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he goes on to list this, all these horrible things that will happen to the nation of Israel. He didn't say... If there's a whole bunch of places where it says, this will happen to you, you will disobey, and I will kick you out of the land. But two chapters later in Deuteronomy 30, it says this. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. Yes, there will be a time of suffering because of disobedience. But God has preordained a time where you will come back to him. In that affliction, you will seek him. And when you seek him, he will now turn that around on your enemies who persecuted you. When you obey his voice, he will turn the curses on the enemies, and they will be destroyed. So it's predicated on 
not just Israel, the whole world turning to God. Because this isn't just a story about the Jews and Israel. Israel is a story for all of humanity to read. The Old Testament is for the entire world. Because when God sent the, the, the Israelites into the land of Canaan, to the promised land, he told them that he was sending them in to, to evict the Canaanites for the evil sin that they're guilty of. And he warned Israel, if you follow in their footsteps, I'm going to do the same to you. And he did. Okay? Mm-hmm. So whatever happens to, it happened to Israel applies to us if we disobey. Also, if we obey. Yeah, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And I think that ties into kind of the hope that we have in the midst of this evil world that we find ourselves in and understanding. So we've we've been saying, yeah, you know, there's all these evil things going on, but God has ultimately a good purpose for it, right? Now, where can we look to know for a fact that God will use the evil acts of men to bring about good, ultimate good? Well, uh, in many places, but Genesis fifty twenty is a very famous verse. This is when Joseph uh, meets his brothers who sold him into slavery. Yeah. He says this, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Although Joseph's brothers tried to first murder him and they decided to sell him into slavery, mm-hmm. God used those evil things to put Joseph into the place where he would literally save the whole world from starving of, uh, of a famine. Yeah. The seven years of storing up grain and food right. to save the whole world, including his brothers. So... I don't know Joseph, what you're going through. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. Right. And ultimately used in that betrayal to save a nation. Yeah. To maybe, save a people. Maybe you're going through something really bad. But know this, God is going to bring something good out of it. Romans 8, 28, right? Yep. Yeah. And our believing thinkers <laughs> who are challenging to think out there should be right now hearing Christ, 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 Christ. Yes. Right? It's this very clear type of Christ being sent to save the world that God so loved. And the when, the ultimate solution to the problem of evil that I find, I always am trying to get people to, at least contains, it's not completely summarized in, but it contains Acts 2.23. So him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And it goes on to talk about the purpose of that. So there you have first cause, second cause. There you have the determinate counsel of God in the most evil, wicked, it's unimaginably wicked. The murder of Jesus Christ, there's, you can't, if, if you truly grant who he is yeah. and who he was at this time, perfectly sinless, son of God, second person of the Trinity, the only perfect man, and this man is going to be murdered and tortured and betrayed, betrayed by brethren, you know, cast aside, uh, forsaken of by his by his disciples, feeling experientially as if God turned away from him, as the song says, my, my favorite line, but that this, this experience of desolation, spiritual desolation, 
which was a real experience, a real mm-hmm. cry of dereliction, which was prophetically set down many, many years before, and that he does utter upon the cross. And why? What is the purpose of this death? For the salvation of the world. There is no hope. Yeah. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. We all die, and that's it. Game over. Tony alluded to this earlier. Duration. The time suffered. You can live... People are speculating we might live 500 years. People are people have speculated before that. We'll go back to Noahic lifespans. You can live 10,000 years. Weigh that in the balance compared to an eternity of suffering. Weigh that in the balance to, to a, an eternity of joy, of blessedness, of face-to-face beatific communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comparison. All sorrow, all suffering, all hate, all evil drops away. And becomes as as it were, it, it becomes relegated to the place it belongs, which is this this thing that had meaning and had a purpose, but brought you to the point you're in now, which is looking back at it as, oh, my God did all these things for me, and here I am now. Mm-hmm. It's if you've ever moved out of a traumatic event or a horrible th- tragedy, if you've ever moved past it, you don't look back at it as a present reality, as something that's stalking you nipping at your heels right that's what it means to have moved past it instead the people who've accomplished so much in the world will say those things that should have broken me and destroyed me are exactly what made me the man i am today Mm -hmm. or exactly why i have the work ethic and the drive that i have how much more so will you say all those things that happened in my life Mm -hmm. they have gone completely dim it's almost as they've faded into non-existence in in comparison to the incomparable weight of glory that I now enjoy. Let's let the yeah. Apostle Paul Amen. comment on the Second Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is mm. but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So there's the time element, right? It's for just a moment, right? But the suffering element is there also. This light affliction. He says it's light. Whatever it is in it's comparison light. to eternity and the glory is light right? But that affliction has a purpose. It's to uh, make exceeding glory and joy for us in the next life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, thank you for reading that. It's better than I could ever say it. The, the, think about what Paul suffered. Think about the horrors that Paul experienced and that the horrors that Paul as Saul carried out before his conversion All of that properly considered is light affliction. By God's grace, many of us, maybe everybody in this room, maybe everybody we know personally or many of them don't come close to this. You know, there's a famous guy who works in missions and evangelism in the foreign fields, and he was almost set on fire. I can't imagine Mm -hmm. what he was doused in gasoline and he was almost set on fire. And he ends up witnessing to the people who are trying to set him ablaze. Some people already know who this is. And they're converted because they can't get the lighter to work. Second cause. Oh, wow. (laughs) Click, click, click. Why? Why won't this work? Mm. I can't imagine what that affliction is. He knows. That man knows. I don't know his heart. But from what I know of him, I think he knows. I have hope and confidence, faith that he knows that 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 horrible thing was a light affliction, affliction, excuse me, in the overall super context, the context that contextualizes everything of eternity with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such an important perspective um, to keep at the heart of all of this. You know, 
because what we live through and what we experience and see around us can be so heart-wrenching and hard to really hard to you know swallow at, at times and it you know it just reminds me that the men think men walk around most men walk around men and women thinking that we live in darkness right most people don't ever think about the fact that we are the darkness like it is part of our heart and that sinful nature that we were born with right and when we're born again you know god takes that heart um, of of darkness and turns it to light takes our heart of stone turns it to flesh and and that is the only that's that's the true solution to the problem of evil in this world is god giving people new hearts right which is only um by the grace of god through the gospel right the fact that uh, we are all sinners we've all fallen short of god's glory and it is only through the work of christ crucified on our behalf that god transforms us and gives us new hearts so that we no longer desire to do those things which are evil which are sinful, which are transgressions of his law, but we desire to do those things which are good, right? We desire to love our neighbor and and to love God. Um, and I think Second Peter 3 is a good reminder for us, right, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering, he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So all of God's people, his desire, they will come to repentance. And it's our job, Tony, Daniel, people listening, to share the good news with people. That is, if you, if this, if the evil you see around you bothers you, may that compel you to go out and share the good news. And the good news is that while we all deserve to suffer in hell forever, a painful, everlasting suffering, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid the penalty on the cross by suffering in our place. He died this horrific death that he never deserved because he is God. So that God can have justice by punishing your sin on Jesus. That if you will, will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you can be forgiven and spend eternity with Jesus in heaven rather than in hell where we all deserve to, to spend. Amen. With that, Merry Christmas. This is going to be my last show for the year. So enjoy the holidays. Enjoy your time with family. And remember, Christ came so that we could live and proclaim the gospel. So from Apologetics.com, this is Jason Gallagher saying keep the faith. God bless you guys. Have a happy Sabbath.